Are all bees honeybees? Are all bacteria harmful? Do all weeds harm the crops that feed us? Do all fisheries serve the same purpose? Hello, and welcome to another episode of the STEM Storytellers Podcast. This week, we thought about analogy and metaphor and use them as a tool to explain complex concepts and processes. In our first segment, Simone helps us understand a bit more about bees. Are all of the bees dying? This concerning question is spreading like wildfire among the general public and the scientific community. But the answer is more complicated than a simple yes or no. And that is because it depends on which bees you are talking about. Typically, when we think of bees, the honeybee is the first thing that comes to mind. This is due to the fact that most commercial pollination efforts are conducted by honeybees. But did you know that the honeybees are not even native to North America? It's true. They were brought from Europe and introduced to North America in the early 1600s for honey production. Since then, we have used honeybees to pollinate all sorts of crops and use their honey while we were at it. Since honeybees are a social bee, meaning they live in hives, they are easy to manage and move around. Therefore, we use them to pollinate crops such as almonds. When the time comes to pollinate almonds, all of the honeybee hives in the United States are shipped to Southern California. It is during this time that hundreds of thousands of honeybees are in the same location all at once, allowing diseases to spread. So yes, the honeybees are vulnerable to diseases such as colony collapse disorder because of the way they are managed and often leading to their declines. However, there are thousands of different types of bees that most people don't even know about. For example, in Montana, there are five families of bees with dozens to hundreds of species within a given family. Only one of the five bee families in Montana have social bees, like the honeybee, while the remaining four bee families are made up of solitary bees, meaning that they live and reproduce independently without living in a hive. In a way, the honeybee is to all bees as the S&P 500 is to the stock market. It is a great index to judge how the environment is doing, but it is just one index within the environment or the market. It is true that honeybees are suffering declines and therefore pollination efforts have followed suit. It is important that we diversify these efforts beyond just one or two species to the thousands of species we already have here in North America. The attention that the possible bee extinction has received has brought bee conservation to the forethought of many Americans. I just ask that we take it one step further and start thinking about bees that were already here and how we can invest in their pollination efforts for the future. Next, George continues the bee theme while delving into the world of bacteria.
Hey, this is George Scheibel, and I'm here to tell you the truth about bacteria. It's flu season, and it's that time of year we practically bathe in hand sanitizer. I'm sure at some point you've seen or heard the phrase, kills 99.9% of germs. We see this claim on the cleaners and hand sanitizers that companies are frantically trying to sell us right now. All the products are aimed at killing as many germs as possible, including bacteria. But are all bacteria germs? Are all bacteria bad? Bacteria are often associated with things that are dirty, like soil. Did you know that if you took a pinch of soil about the size of a sugar cube, you'd be holding roughly 10 billion bacteria? That's more than all the humans that live on Earth in between your fingers. So it makes sense that we associate bacteria with things like dirt, since there's so many of them living in it. After you drop that pinch of dirt, you might notice your fingers are dirty and you want to wash them. That's a great idea and you should do that, but did you know that less than 1% of those 10 billion bacteria can actually make you sick? That's right, 99.9% .9 of them want nothing to do with you. In fact, bacteria generally serve good and useful purposes rather than malicious ones. Some of the common uses of bacteria are for the production of dairy products and fermented drinks, things that we use in everyday life. Also, that essential vitamin for life, vitamin B12, it's only made by bacteria. Although gross to think about, some vegans suggest eating the dirt under their fingernails to get the complete source of vitamin B12 that they need. Of course, even though most bacteria are harmless, there are still some bacteria that can kill. One of the most well-known is methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, or MRSA as it's commonly known. But even this potentially deadly bacteria can remain harmless. In fact, 33% of people unknowingly carry MRSA in their nose. The reason it's not a problem is that it's happy to live in your nose, paying no attention to you. So then, how should we think about bacteria? Bacteria are like honeybees. You might get stung by one, but generally, they leave you alone. And the purpose they serve is very important for life on Earth. So the next time you use that hand sanitizer, and you should, remember that you're only targeting that 0.1%, and the other 99.9% .9 have no interest in you. They're just that happy little bee that's buzzing around from flower to flower. Next up, Mei Ling cares for her crops the way parents care for children. Here, she describes how weeds are part of that process. When people ask me what I'm studying, I tell them I'm studying weed management. Because of my pronunciation, I often get two typical responses. Some people said, that's great, you can make breads. Some people have gotten excited and said, wow, can you sell me some? When farmers think of weed management, they think of eliminating all weeds in their fields. They often misunderstand that all weeds are bad because weeds can compete resources with crops and lower the crop productions 
but some weeds can be beneficial. For example, some flowering weeds can attract pollinators like bees to the fields, which may increase crop production. Some weeds can be a food source to the wildlife, and some weeds can extract nitrogen from the atmosphere and transfer it to the soil, which provides a nutrients to the soil. As weed scientists, we advise farmers to be familiar with weed species, so they can select the species, the weed species that are beneficial to the crop. You can think of it this way: crops are like your children. You want your children to associate with others that will have a positive influence on them. In the same way. You want to keep weeds that will have positive influence on your crops. Finally, Taylor explains the differences between conservation-style fish hatcheries and commercial fish production. Hi, I'm Taylor, a researcher at Montana State University, studying how the personality traits of trout can affect their performance in a hatchery. A common misconception that people have about my research is that all hatcheries are created equal, but there are many different types. The two most common types of hatcheries are the traditional production-style hatcheries and the newer conservation hatcheries. There are a lot of big differences between these two types of hatcheries, mainly in the way they view fish production. A good way to think of it is production hatcheries are to factories as conservation hatcheries are to artisanal local craft stores. Production hatcheries are focused on mass-producing fish, with not as much focus on the quality of each individual, much like a factory producing cheap, fast fashion with a machine. Conservation hatcheries are focused on producing high-quality fish, but not necessarily a high quantity, much like a local shop producing high-quality goods but taking a long time on each item. Production hatcheries, especially those that raise salmon or trout, are becoming increasingly controversial. This is largely due to the consensus that the hatchery salmon can negatively impact wild populations and can cause population declines over time. This can result in river fishing closures and decreased amounts of killer whales or other salmon predators. These salmon are like the sweater you got at Walmart on sale for $2, then immediately falls apart because it was so poorly made. But since they were so cheap, you bought 20, so you have plenty of replacements. My research takes place in a conservation hatchery, where the focus is on ensuring that every individual fish that is produced will be able to go out into the wild and be healthy and self-sustaining. The goal of conservation hatcheries is to replace lost populations of trout that were displaced due to human effects, like habitat destruction, overfishing, or invasive species introduction. This is why it's so important that each fish be high quality. They need to be strong and healthy to successfully recolonize their historic habitat. These fish are like your favorite sweater that was made lovingly by hand, and so it's lasted forever, even though one time you put it in the dryer by mistake. Hopefully, this explanation can help to resolve a common misconception with the perception of hatcheries, so that the negative connotations that are associated with traditional hatcheries don't carry over into my research. 
Thanks for listening to another installment of the STEM Storytellers podcast. Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions.